As Nigel said, uh, this morning we're finishing our, our series on the seven saints from the cross. Uh, if you weren't here, uh, you can listen to them on iTunes. We've done, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do, and I do not know what I speak. Today you will be with me in paradise. Behold your son, behold your mother. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I thirst, it is finished. And then this is the final one today. Um, Personally, I found this incredible as we've looked at these. Um, it's, it's good to look at Jesus. As we did that this morning in worship, I, I think you know, it just helps us to, to elevate ourselves and look at who Jesus is. Um, and that's what we're all about. We're about elevating Jesus. And as we've done this series, I think that's what's happened among us. Uh, you know, we've been elevating him and the spirit has come. It's been incredible. Uh, and we'll go on doing that. So could you turn to Luke 23, uh, just going to read verses 44 uh, and up to 46. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. Very short. But you'll add this to everything that we've seen so far. Um, I'd like to say that it could be suggested that someone's last words tell you a lot about that person. Um, there's some famous people that I've got their last words here, or their reported last words. I wasn't there, so I'm unable to, to tell you if these were actually their last words. First one is Winston Churchill. Uh, he died on January the 24th, 1965. His last words, apparently were, I'm bored with it all. Lovely last words. I, I hope that you won't be leaving Wrexham with those words. Um, Van Beethoven, who died on March the 26th, 1827, is thought to have said, friends applaud, the comedy is finished. Perhaps he had a, a, quite a funny life, perhaps. Um, and the most recent one, just in the past uh, couple of weeks, you may have heard that Claire Rayner died. Her reported last words... Um, were the following. Tell David Cameron that if he screws up my beloved NHS, I'll come back and haunt him. So uh, I'm hoping that that, that won't be true, uh, because I like the NHS to prosper. So then, uh, what can we tell from Jesus from his final words? I want to suggest we can tell two main things. Uh, Firstly, Jesus was fully in control. And secondly, that he faced death with confidence. We'll be looking at these questions behind. I just put them up too early. So just ignore those. Uh, This morning I'd like to unpack these two themes and look at what it means to us. Um, First though, I want to look at the cross in vivid terms so that we can put everything into context. Um, The following description may alarm you. Uh, I know that myself, as I've been reading this, I've been emotional reading through this. And something that I actually tussled with was, do I condense this or, or do I actually cut it out? But I think that it's important to to understand the cross was something that was real. Not that it was, you know, something that's a fairy tale that we hear about, but this was real. So the following has been condensed from the crucifixion of uh, Christ Jesus by Truman Davis and March. After the arrest in the middle of the night, Jesus was brought before the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas, the high priest. A soldier struck Jesus across the face for remaining silent when questioned by Caiaphas. The palace guards then blindfolded him and mockingly taunted him to identify them as they passed by him. They spat on him and they struck him in the face. 
In the early morning, Jesus, battered and bruised, dehydrated and exhausted from a sleepless night, was taken across Jerusalem to the fortress Antonia. It was there, in response to the cries of the mob, that Pilate ordered Barabbas released and condemned Jesus to scourging and crucifixion. Preparations for the scourging are carried out. The prisoner is stripped of his clothing, his hands are tied to a post above his head. The Roman legionnaire steps forward with the flag room in his hand. This is a short whip consisting of several heavy leather thongs with two small balls of lead attached to the ends of each. The heavy whip is brought down with full force again and again across Jesus' shoulders, back and legs. At first, the heavy thongs cut through the skin only. Then, as the blows continue, they cut deeper into his tissues, producing first an oozing of blood from the capillaries and veins of the skin. Finally, it causes arterial bleeding from the vessels and the underlying muscles. The small balls of lead first produce large, deep bruises, which are then broken open by the subsequent blows. Finally, the skin of the back is hanging in long ribbons, and the entire area is an unrecognisable mass of torn, bleeding tissue. When it is determined by the centurion in charge that the prisoner is near death, the beating stops. The half-fainting Jesus is then untied and allowed to slump to the stone pavement, wet with its own blood. The Roman soldiers see a great joke in this provincial Jew claiming to be a king. They throw a robe across his shoulders and place a stick in his hand for a scepter. A small bundle of flexible branches covered with long thorns is pressed into his scalp. Again, this copious bleeding. The scalp being one of the most vascular areas in the body. After mocking him and striking him across the face, the soldiers take the stick from his hand and strike him across the head, driving the thorns deeper into his scalp. Finally, they tire of their sadistic sport and the robe is torn from his back. This had already become adherent to the clots of blood and serum in the wounds. Its removal, just as in the careless removing of a surgical bandage, caused excruciating pain, almost as though he were again being whipped and the wounds again begin to bleed. The heavy beam of the cross is then tied across his shoulders and the procession of the condemned Christ, two thieves and the execution detail begins its slow journey. The weight of the heavy wooden beam together with the shock produced by copious blood loss is too much. He stumbles and falls. The rough wood of the beam gouges into the lacerated skin and muscles of the shoulders. He tries to rise, but human muscles have been pushed beyond their endurance. At Golgotha, the beam is placed on the, on the ground. Jesus is quickly thrown backwards, his shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire feels for the depressions at the front of his wrists. He drives a heavy, square, wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flexion of movement. The beam is then lifted in place at the top of the posts, and the reading, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, is nailed in place. The left foot is pressed backward against the right foot, with both feet extended, toes down, a nail is driven through the arch of each. As he pushes himself upward to avoid the stretching torment, he places his full weight on the nail through his feet. 
Again, there is the searing agony of the nail through his feet. As the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps come the inability to push himself upwards. Hanging by his arms, the muscles are unable to act. Air can be drawn into the last, must, sorry, air can be drawn into the thungs, but cannot be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get even one short breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. Occasionally, he's able to push himself upwards to exhale and bring in the life-giving oxygen. Hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramp, intermittent uh, asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins, a deep crushing pain deep in the chest as it slowly fills to compress the heart. The heart struggles to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air. The markedly dehydrated tissues send their floods of stimuli to the brain. With this, Jesus grasps, gasps, I thirst. I'm sorry if that disturbed you. I personally found that striking as I read through this, but I feel it's important that we start here because this is where we're at. This is where we meet this story. These are where those words are from. I want to suggest that in the midst of this horrific death, that Jesus was not a victim, even though he looks like one. But actually, he was in control. In the midst of this excruciating agony, Jesus was in control. So that's my first question that's behind me. And then secondly, why did he endure it? Let's look at the first one then. Was Jesus in control? I could simply say yes and end the sermon there, but I think you'd want more than that. Jesus' final words were, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This wording suggests that Jesus still had control over his spirit, otherwise it would have just been a passive process. We also find that these words are repeating uh, the the prayer of David in Psalm 31, uh, except Jesus puts the inclusion of Father at the beginning. Jesus makes lots of references to the Old Testament. Um, One of the most striking prophecies from the Old Testament about Jesus is Isaiah 53. As I read these, I think you'll be able to identify them with that description I gave you of the crucifixion. Isaiah 53 describes one who would be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, one who is familiar with suffering, stricken by God, smitten by him, one who is afflicted, pierced, crushed. He would be punished and wounded, one who would not open his mouth, but would be led like a lamb to the slaughter, one who would be cut off from the land of living, and would be assigned a grave even though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. 
not just physically, but also his spirit would suffer. That's an incredible prophecy that was many, many years before this happened. Jesus knew what he had to endure. Jesus was to fulfill this prophecy, and it was the Lord's will for him to suffer. As I've been looking at the cross again, it's almost like I've looked at it for the first time. I find it incredible that the Lord would will for Jesus to suffer in this way. It was Jesus who would be the one who was to be a guilt offering. He was to be the one who would bear the sins of many. He was the one who would be pierced for our transgressions. He knew what was to come, and yet he went there. When Jesus' public ministry began, it was apparent that Jesus had a purpose to his life, and even to his death. We see when he breaks forth uh, at the start of his public ministry that John the Baptist Uh, says, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Is the right one come? Yes. In that culture, lambs were the animal that was used as a sacrifice. So basically, as Jesus walks onto the scene, John the Baptist is declaring, Behold, here comes the one who will be slain and sacrificed for all the sins of the world. That's not a particularly happy declaration as you walk along, is it? But there is good news to come, don't worry. Then we've got John 3.16. Again, it's, it's something that's very familiar to us, but sometimes we don't look at it. This was before Jesus died. It is Jesus who declares that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus is the son that the Father is giving so that those who believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It was Jesus who spoke these words. He knew that he had to be given up. We find later that Jesus says that he has to come to do the will of the Father. He also regularly told his disciples there was a time coming when he would no longer be with them. Before Jesus' triumphal entry to Jerusalem, we find his feet were anointed with perfume, and Jesus defends the lady who does this by talking about his impending burial. Death was on his mind. During his life, Jesus often used imagery that inferred death and likened it to himself. An example of this is again in John's Gospel, as he talks about how a kernel seed must first die before life comes out of it, referring that he must die for life to come. We also find that he often says this phrase, My hour has not yet come. When he's, when he's with his disciples, he says that... Um, Destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it. Rebuild it. He's referring to himself there well, where he'll die and be raised to life. John 10, Jesus says, The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I re- receive from my father. And then at the Last Supper... We find that he breaks bread and he tells them that this is his body broken for them. That this is his blood that is poured out for them. He knew what was going to happen. Again, we even find that during the Last Supper, he says that one of his disciples will betray him. He knew what was coming. When Jesus is approaching the time he'll be seized, he calls to his father and asks for the cup to be taken from him. 
But if there is no other way, he will do the will of his father. When Jesus stands before Pilate, Jesus tells Pilate that he would have no power over Jesus if it were not given to him from above. Jesus knew all of this. We find in Acts 4, 27 to 28, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. This may look, as we looked at that cross and that gruesome scene, it may have looked like that was completely out of Jesus' control. Jesus knew what was coming. None of this happened by chance. I think in all this we can clearly see that he did know what was taking place. He knew that it was his purpose to die on that cross. It was his purpose to die in such an excruciating way. He could have stopped that horrific death at any point, but he didn't. So then, why did Jesus endure the cross? Firstly, let's look at Hebrews 12, verse 2. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. It's just one verse. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We already heard how horrific this death was for Jesus. So how can it be said that he did this for the joy set before him. If I was to perhaps you know, ask Steve, um, how about I torture you, I nail you to a cross for the joy set before you, I'm sure that he would say no to that. But actually, Jesus said yes. So what was the joy that Jesus would endure? And sorry, what was the joy that Jesus had set before him And therefore, why did he endure the cross? Firstly, Jesus endured the cross because he knew he was fulfilling his father's will. Isaiah 53 verse 10 says that it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. So in John 10, uh, Jesus says, The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my father. Very much in his mind is that he's doing what the father wills. Jesus knows that in enduring the cross, he was fulfilling what his father had commanded him to do. It's great joy to please your father. I'm sure that all of us have known moments where our father was delighted with us as we did what he wanted us to do. I don't think that there's many uh, greater joys than when your, your father turns to you and he approves of you and he says, well done. And actually, Jesus here was not just fulfilling perhaps a minor errand, like perhaps uh, every Saturday it was my job to get my pocket money. I had to go and get the bread and I had to go and get the, the papers. Not much, really. Um, but as I brought it back, my dad thanked me for what I did and gave me my money. Um, Jesus wasn't doing a minor errand here, but actually Jesus was fulfilling everything that his father had commanded him to do, and it was the father's greatest plan. It was his salvation plan. Think of the joy that there must have been in that. 
Jesus knew that he would get a well done as he came into heaven uh, from all of this. It, it was a real privilege this week. Uh, myself and Fleur went to uh, Sammy and Silas's graduation ceremony. Um, and at the start of it, the, the vice chancellor said that at the start of their courses, he had stood there and had shown them his hand. And he said that um, he was looking forward to being able to shake their hand at the end of their course. And that was the day uh, on Wednesday that he was shaking their hands in order to say well done for what they'd done. Uh, it was a good time. I think Silas enjoyed it. Uh, he's still got his suit on from the day. I, I think he's going to you know, live in that suit for the rest of his days by looks of it. But actually, um, there was great joy on that day. Uh, yes, it was the day that was full of ceremony. People were there and they were pleased that these guys had, had got their uh, degrees. But actually, so much more must it have been in heaven as Jesus entered after what he'd done. Could you imagine that scene as Jesus walks in, as the Father looks at him and says, well done. That must have been an incredible scene as Jesus walked in. That, that is joy. Can you imagine also the, the mutual joy that there was there? Um, the son knows that he has fulfilled his father's will, and the father knows that his son has completed his will. Uh, I found this this morning, and so I included it. Um, it was on Twitter, so uh, I've got a Twitter quote. That's not bad, is it? John Piper says, uh, When God's curse rested most heavily on Jesus because of sin, the father's love for his son reached explosive proportions. And that's what it was like. Can you imagine the joy of the father as his son does everything that he caused him to do? Such joy. Next, we find that Jesus endured the cross because he rejoices over just one sheep. In Matthew 18 verse 13, it says that Jesus rejoices when just one sheep is brought into the fold. So imagine Jesus' joy uh, on that day when he knew that what he was doing was opening that up to all people. It wasn't just, just one sheep that, that had the potential to come to him, but actually he was opening it up to every tribe, to every tongue, to every nation, to every generation. Can you imagine the joy in his heart if he rejoices just over one sheep? And now you're talking about these scales. That's huge. Again, such joy that Jesus faced. Next. I'm one behind, am I? There we go. Thanks, Nigel. So Jesus endured the cross because he was thinking of his bride. The Bible describes the church as Jesus' bride. Uh, my wedding was seven years ago now. Um, and actually it was David and Maureen's son who, who married us. Uh, I don't mean that I'm married to, to Andrew. Um, yeah, I'm glad about that. I wouldn't want David for a father-in-law, no. Uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> That's the good bit. <laughs> um, but on that day, uh, Andrew, as you can imagine, this is his dad, so Andrew's a little bit similar, and he was joking around. At the moment that Flo was coming through the door, he said to me, she's turned around, she's running away. Uh, fortunately, she wasn't, but I think it was just his way of trying to calm me down with my nerves. Um, it certainly worked for a moment. Um, but that moment, as the music began, as, and as I turned and I saw Fleur coming through those doors, it was an incredible moment. And, you know, for the husband's year, you know what that's like, just as your, as your bride walked in through that door. 
Uh, such joy fills your heart as you see your bride coming through. Everything else in the room just stops as you see her. And actually, this is what Jesus had in mind as well. He knew that as, as he was doing this, he was thinking about us, the church, his bride. And not only was he thinking about meeting her, but he was also realising that he was purifying his bride. That he was making the most beautiful and glorious bride that the earth has seen or will ever see. Such joy that he had doing this. Next, he endured the cross because he knew that he would be reconciling man and God. Colossians 1 verse 20 says that through Jesus, all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, were reconciled to God. And that Jesus' blood shed on a cross brought peace. Since Adam and Eve had sinned in the Garden of Eden, sin had separated man and God. They no longer had the intimacy that they once shared. Man had been separated from God. This had been demonstrated very vividly through the temple curtain. Uh, It stood in the temple in order to separate the Holy of Holies, which was the earthly uh, dwelling of God's presence, from the rest of the temple where men dwelt. We find that this signified that man was separated from God by their sin. Only the high priest was permitted to pass beyond the veil once a year in order to enter his presence for all of Israel and make atonement for their sins. This uh, curtain was not like a curtain that you've got in your house, not even perhaps in, in Peter and Mac's house. I know they have lovely curtains, but they don't have one quite this big. We're talking about something that was probably about 60 foot high and at least four inches thick. That's quite a curtain. But we saw in our passage in Luke that the moment that Jesus died, the curtain was torn in two. So in the moment that Jesus died, the separation was finished. No longer would man be separated from God, but through Jesus, we may know relationship with God. And not only that, but through Jesus, we we may boldly enter the Holy of Holies. Not because of our worth, not because of what we've done, but 100% through Jesus and his sacrifice. So again, imagine the joy that he felt as he knew he was restoring the relationship and reconciling man and God once more. He was taking away the shame and the guilt that we may enter his presence once more. Martin Luther put it like this. Christ took our sins and the sins of the whole world as well as the Father's wrath on his shoulders. And he was was drowned then both in himself that we are thereby reconciled to God and become completely righteous. Shame and guilt gone. Now we're righteous. And Jesus did this and he felt such joy as he did that for us. Next, he knew how the film would end. Uh, I wonder if perhaps you've been sitting there at any point with someone who has already watched the film and knows how it ends. Uh, it's quite a strange moment when you're sitting there and you're on the edge of the seat and you think, why did this happen? Uh, you know, you, you find that, I don't know what film it might be, I can't even think of a good one now. Um, 
because I don't want to, the other thing is that I don't want to destroy it for you in terms of tell you an ending to a film that you've not yet seen. Uh, it happened to me in a psychology class that I was at, at school where uh, they were all talking about a film that I was just about to see and they blew it for me, which is lovely of them. But, you know, Jesus knew what the end of the film would be. We might sit there like looking at that crucifixion scene, we're filled with horror and we cry out and think that there's such injustice. But actually, Jesus says, wait till the end. Wait till what comes. The cross appears to be a symbol of despair. But actually, he knew that on the third day, he would be resurrected. And by doing so, he would defeat sin, he would defeat death, and he would defeat sickness. Jesus knew that the cross was just the beginning. He knew what the cross would mean. He knew the other side of Isaiah 53. I've already gone into the graphic bit about uh, the prophecy in terms of what Jesus would have to endure, but this is what Jesus would win for us. He would be taking our iniquities and our transgressions. He would be bringing us peace and healing. He would be our guilt offering. And he would see the light of life and be satisfied. He would justify many. He He would be given a portion among the great and divide the spoils. He would make intercession for the transgressors. Again, such joy that he must have felt knowing what the cross was achieving. And the last one, we touched on it in one of the songs that we sung. He endured the cross because the joy of the Lord was his strength. Something that that I was amazed at was looking at the agony of the cross and thinking, how on earth did Jesus endure that? How did he even get to being on the cross when he went through all of that? The joy of the Lord was his strength. Nehemiah 8 verse 10 tells us that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Jesus was able to endure the cross because of what was set before him. Joy had given him strength to go with it. His final moments weren't like anyone else's last moments. He wasn't like Churchill who stood there and and said, I'm bored with it all. Actually, he knew that it was with confidence that he was dying. He was committing his spirit into the hands of his father so that we can have great confidence that when we approach death. Again, I find it incredible about that personal nature there that he committed his spirit into the hands of his father. It's not just that it was empty, but he personally gave it over into the hands of his father. The Father loves the Son, and the Father loves us through the Son. So we too can have the confidence that Jesus had as he approached death. We have a loving Father who waits for us in heaven, and we too can join with Jesus when we die and say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. If you don't know that confidence as you think about death, because you don't yet know Jesus, I want to plead with you to not leave this room without chatting to me. Can I ask for Phil and Tim to come up, please? In summary, we can see that Jesus endured the cross. It was horrible what he endured. It was horrific. But actually, he wasn't one who was powerless as he went to the cross. But he was very much in control. He endured the cross because of the joy set before him. And that joy was fulfilling his father's will. It was rejoicing over his sheep. 
It was thinking of his glorious bride. It was reconciling man and God. He knew the ending. And the joy of the Lord was his strength. So I wonder if we can perhaps respond to that by thanking God for what he's done. Thanking him that he endured the cross. I know that I perhaps step away when pain comes. I, I wouldn't have done what Jesus did. He did it because he loves us. He did it with such joy in his heart about what it would win.